Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name is Josh Miles. I'm a designer, brand strategist, and principal at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. On today's show, I catch up with Rick Valicenti. Rick and I talk about how he got started in design in Chicago, and it's not the direct path that you might expect. I love that this story is about connecting the dots to seemingly unimportant details in Rick's career and where he ended up today. For longtime listeners, you may know that occasionally we get a little bit of background noise in some of these conversations. We've had everything from crickets to geckos to dogs barking and trucks backing up. This conversation at about nine minutes in, we've got some background noise. I promise it is worth bearing through and getting to all the good stuff. We just didn't want to cut that part out of the conversation. So just heads up on that. But without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Rick Valicenti. Okay, guys, all the way from Chicago today, I am excited to have Rick Valicenti. Rick is an incredible graphic designer with a passion for typography that pushes the envelope. Rick is the founder and director, design director of Thirst, a communication design practice providing design and immersive environments for high-profile clients in architectural, performing arts, and education communities. His work has been exhibited at the Museum of Modern Art and resides in permanent collections of the Yale and Columbia University Libraries, Denver Art Museum, and the Art Institute of Chicago, and has been published in the New York Times. His work has been featured critiqued and lauded in design publications worldwide, and he's garnered awards from AR100, Graphis, CA Print, Tokyo Art Directors, and ID Magazines, among others. He's lectured extensively and exhibited his work around the world. He served as president of the Society of Typographic Art and was awarded the AIGA Chicago Fellows Award in 2004 for his steadfast commitment to the education of design's future generations. The White House honored Valicenti in 2011 with the Smithsonian Cooper Hewitt National Design Award for Communication Design, and in 2006, he received the AIGA Medal, the highest honor of graphic design profession for his sustained contribution to design excellence and development of the profession. Holy crap, Rick, is there anything you haven't (laughs) won yet? And welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you, Josh. There's one thing you left out. About uh, a month ago, I was in a roundtable conversation, and I asked someone to give their two cents about me. And here's what they had to say. He was big in the 90s, and now he's a bit of a has-been. <laughs> so, Lovely. Somehow that, that didn't that make it into the full bio. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, now we've filled it out. It's all good. <laughs> well, I would say my most recent interaction with your work um, prior to today was seeing some of the killer stuff that you guys did for our neighbors down the street in Columbus, Indiana, which I want to um, unpack a bit more in a second. But before we get into that, I always like to start the show and asking everyone about their kind of how they made it into the world of design. So tell us a little bit about your origin story. A good question. Okay. So uh, first of all, in Full disclosure, I'm 65 years old. I turned 65 at the end of November. I, like everybody else, went to college back in the, everyone else my age, I should say, went to college as opposed to going to the military service when the Vietnam War was in 
full swing. So I went to college in 1969, graduated in 73 from Bowling Green State University with a degree in painting and drawing with a uh, minor emphasis in photography and what was then an emerging profession called graphic design. In 1973, the thing that I recall most from graphic design was certainly Pushpin Studios. Mm -hmm. uh, every, every album cover I was holding. And I guess the advertising of Doyle, Dane, and Birnbach with their Volkswagen ads would be like, think small. And there would be a big page of white space and a little black and white photo of a Volkswagen. Yeah. That was uh, my exposure. Well, I took that in 1973, yeah. that portfolio that was full of life drawing uh, Conte crayon images to Pittsburgh, to the advertising agency community, all of which in a rather quick period of time laughed me out of their studios because I was not qualified on any level to have a contribution that was commercial. I just wasn't exposed to it and didn't know how to do it. So <clears throat> like uh, a good Pittsburgh kid, I thought it best if I got a job and I got a job as a United States steel worker in the steel mill for two years. That's the fastest ticket to graduate school one can ever get. <laughs> so in my last year, uh, tired of my pickup truck, punching in double shifts, time and a half, double time on holidays, and of course, buying a really great camera and a great darkroom setup, I decided uh, I would apply to seven grad schools. I got accepted to all of them, Cranbrook among them. However, Cranbrook I applied for photography, and um, the others besides the University of Iowa, which is what I chose for photography, I applied as a painter. I went to the University of Iowa, and after two years there of studio work and a thesis called The Hybrid Reality, I came to Chicago where my mother had moved and looked around that scene thinking, again, I could be a photographer, but I saw them photographing hot dogs, cornflakes, and beer. That's what I recall. Little did I know then <laughs> that there was the fabulous Hedrick Blessing studio doing fantastic architectural work. There was certainly the Playboy studio that was doing great photography here. And uh, I just didn't have that on my radar at all. So I leveraged a letterpress class I'd taken at the writer's workshop at the University of Iowa and said to myself, at least, I'm going to be a designer. Again, modest if none in term or no commercial expertise or credentials to name and i tried to get any kind of employment after 50 plus interviews not only did i build a portfolio mimicking the work i was seeing in these studios i would watch myself get rejected look at the work on the walls go home and try to replicate it, fill my portfolio with stuff, go back out on the street 50 times until finally I answered an ad in the Chicago Trib, ironically doing recruitment ad production for an ad agency. The sexiest of sexy work. Back then it was drawing uh, with pen and ink, little ink borders that were rectangular with radius corners and then taking justified type cutting it out, gluing it down in the center and sticking a logo in the lower left corner and sending it off to the Chicago Tribune where someone might become a plant manager or an accountant. Uh, that lasted about six months. I was in a windowless studio. It was just 
yeah. crazy, and I preferred unemployment. I figured six <laughs> months of this, and it was a semester. I wonder but, if that job's uh, still open at the steel mill. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. I could go to Gary. I mean, I already ha- kept have my card, and I still had my steel-toed shoes. So I was equipped. However, I waited two months, and this time I answered another ad in the Chicago Tribune, and this was for a woman who was to be on pregnancy leave at an insurance company in Evanston. I spent an hour and a, uh, an hour and a half. It felt like an hour and a half. I spent a year and a half there doing cafeteria flyers and insurance forms and managing their dark room in the small fledgling art department. But on one particular day, I saw some flyers on the telephone poles in Evanston announcing an ICAGRATA Design Congress. And ICAGRATA stands for the International Congress of Graphic Design Associations. And they were holding their biannual conference at Northwestern. And a guy named Robert Vogel of RVI Incorporated was the chair of this conference. But these little flyers, these eight and a half by 11 flyers, some of which I pulled off the telephone pole and took to my quote-unquote art director at the insurance company, blew my mind. They were the kind of design I'd only imagined and never really paid attention to. So I took it back into the studio and asked the art director if indeed the insurance company would pay for me to go just down the street to Northwestern and attend this conference for a week. He said no, (laughs) not surprisingly. So I said, oh, okay. He said, but if you want to take the time off yourself, please feel free to do that. So I did take the time off. I went to this conference, and I'll make this long story a little bit longer because I think (laughs) this is one of those moments where anybody who might hear this, first of all, I don't tell the story too often, and second of all, um, for any young designer, the career we lead is usually there right there for us we just have to make certain we push the right door because mm-hmm. it'll swing right open. So I go to this conference and needless to say, I'm naive and nervous. I don't know anybody. I don't consider myself a designer. And I walk in and um, the first thing I see is an exhibit by the Cranbrook design students in the lobby. Catherine McCoy has set mm-hmm. up this first introduction of an early collection of her student work. It blew my mind. I thought I had just gone to another planet. I go into the lecture hall and I hear speakers like Massimo Vignelli talking about the Washington Metro signage system or Milton Glaser or Ralph Kaplan, who was the then editor of ID Magazine. And uh, clearly I'm freaked out. At every break, I retreat to the registration table where there's a couple of women who are were then my age now. And they were very pleasant and they'd make conversations, small talk with me. Until finally, at the end of the first day, one of the women said, you're awfully nice, but why don't you talk to the other people? Why do you come here? I said, to tell you the truth, I don't know anyone. And I said, you're awfully nice. Is there anything I can do for you guys? And she said, they looked at each other and went, oh, my God. As a matter of fact, there is. Tomorrow night, we're having parties at different houses. And... We want to be able to tell these international visitors which languages are being spoken of which houses. Could you make us maps of Evanston and have them here on the desk tomorrow morning? Mm. I said, I'd be happy to. I just saw Massimo Vignelli show his Manhattan subway maps. I think I, I can do a map looks just like Evanston. And so because I was good at replicating that which I saw, 
ripping it off, appropriating it, give any term you want. In my mind, it was just sort of like <laughs> learning by practice and by example. So I spent that night at the insurance company making these little eight and a half by 11 photostats with hand cut colored paper flags. And I placed them on her desk with a little easel card or an easel stand. And uh, she was so grateful. Well, at the end of the conference, she, I continued to go visit her during my breaks. Uh, Margaret said, you really would like to meet a designer, wouldn't you? I said, I really would. She said, well, my husband's a designer and he has his practice here in Evanston. I'll arrange for him to meet you. So I said, yeah. oh, fabulous. So we schedule a time. I dress up in my uh, navy blue suit. I have my overscaled portfolio that forces me to walk with my elbow always bent. <laughs> Right, as otherwise it drags on the street, and and I show up at uh, this gentleman's office. Bruce Beck was his name, and there's Margaret. She's the receptionist, and there's a couple other receptionists because he's got two partners, and they have all got a staff, and it's like a sea of graphic designers, and it's a kind of slick modernist environment. I thought, oh my God, it's everything I just couldn't imagine here in Evanston. Well. Uh, Margaret says to me, I'm sorry, Bruce won't be able to see you right now. Uh, but if you would see his senior designer, and then if she thinks your portfolio is worth his time, he'll come see you. Mm. Oh, yeah, I had the same reactions. I, <laughs> I wanted to say, hey, lady, I spent all night for you making that map. Do you remember? <laughs> the least I can do is get five minutes. So uh, this woman looks at my work and her name is Barbara Wasserman. And as I recall, she flipped through that portfolio of plastic sleeves so fast and she closed it. And she said, I don't think Bruce has any time. I thought, oh my. And then I thought, I'm sorry, I need to see him. And I told her the story in an abbreviated fashion. Mm -hmm. I said, please just have him come in. I won't take much of his time. So he comes in and here's this guy who then was my age now, and he looks a bit like Yoda. He's got a little white hair, he's got a long gray mustache, <laughs> and he's short, and I, there was no Yoda back then, but that's my recollection. It, he did the same thing Barbara did. He zipped through that portfolio so fast, and he closed it, and he said, I hate your work, but I love your style. You were so nice to my wife. Is there anything else you wanna show me? I said, well, as a matter of fact, there is. I have some photography and I have some uh, letterpress work. Because I had been showing him cafeteria flyers, mm -hmm. recruitment ads, the occasional little one-color quarter-page real estate ad, uh, insurance form. And it was all like, I can't even find the adjective. I show him my photographs. And by then, and I say this with no modesty at all, I was a really first-rate printer. I showed him my letterpress work, and I was a really first-rate printer. Again, just a different medium. He goes, this work is really good. He says, I'm, I'm looking, however, for someone who can draw with pen and ink. Do you know how to do that? I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can do that, and I know Plaka like it's my middle name. So um, he says, I need an assistant. I need someone to draw my typography and my identity work, run my darkroom, 
make my presentations and on occasion help me out in my letterpress studio in my house. He said, wow. can you start? Can you start right away? I said, uh, yeah, I had no idea then that he was in the early classes of the new Bauhaus. I had oh, wow. no idea that he was one of the early presidents of the STA. I had no idea he was featured in CA magazine or had done covers for print magazine, and that he was one of the most respected designers in Chicago. I had no idea. But I fell in shit and I came out smelling good, and there I was with Bruce Beck. And for three and a half years, until he retired, until he retired, I was his number one person. When I joined the studio, there were nine others. When he closed that door and devoted the rest of his type career, making uh, limited edition letterpress books, uh, I was his last employee. And that was uh, March 31st, 1981. And on April Fool's Day, 1981, uh, I set up my first practice, if you will, my first drawing board. Uh, in the STA offices on Ontario Street. Uh, up until then, Bruce had sort of migrated me into the role of president of the STA. And on that board was uh, were designers like Jay Doblin, John Massey, uh, Susan Jackson Keg, Art Paul, the co-founder of Playboy, Robert Vogel was the vice president. Uh, I think Bart Crosby was on there. And it was a kind of uh, veritable and venerable who's who of the Chicago design community. And I was president, not because I was qualified, but because I was the only guy who had the extra energy and commitment to do whatever the board wanted. <laughs> so I was like, I could go, yeah, let Rick do it. He'll do it. And so I worked extra hard to do whatever these guys thought was a cool thing. And in my second year of being president, um, I remember holding a conference where I invited April Griman, who was then unknown, and Ray E who was not so unknown, uh, and an industrial designer named Ned Steinberger, who had designed the Steinberger bass guitar out of uh, carbon, and it was a headless bass guitar. Mm -hmm. uh, we put on a fashion show at our local uh, music venue called the Park West, and it was way out of the box. And those two years established my reputation as someone who was full of energy, uh, had a great pedigree with Bruce Beck and the STA board and was emerging as a creative thinker with great craft. And I think I've just stayed on that path ever since. I love stories about um, when all the dots connect, when these, these seemingly meaningless moments that all kind of line up and culminate to, I mean, you couldn't make that story up with the, <laughs> all the oh, different backgrounds. I mean, it's, no. And I, I loved uh, even the, the idea of doing those 50 interviews and sort of learning from what you saw there and learning to to imitate and by almost by mimicry, like learning how to do what these other agencies were doing to the point that you were able to do that, that level of, of uh, you know, imitation, as you said, to the Massimo Vignelli poster when, when the time came. So I think that's that's just such a cool story. Yeah, and as a young designer, I would also uh, read the journals, you know, because the insurance company got them. I don't know why they got they received CA magazine or print magazine, but I would scour them. And I found out through that medium that Milton Glaser had redesigned with Walter Bernard the Time magazine. 
And I went and I bought Time Magazine. And I remember taking the pages out, tracing them, figuring out how they made the decisions, only to discover for myself that which should have been readily available, what this thing a grid, called a grid was. Mm. And, and that was like a big idea for me in the insurance company. It was completely validated when I went to see these serious designers speak at the Ikegrata conference. And then, of course, when I stepped into Bruce's modernist pavilion of a, a studio, it was clear to me that that kind of armature underneath creative design not only eliminated the unnecessary and arbitrary decision, it also helped streamline a practice. And today, the thirst practice is built on essentially that same model. Most of our work on the surface looks oftentimes more expressive than work coming from some studios, but underneath it is a seriously sound armature and foundation of logic and principle design and typography. Well, I think that's a, that's a good segue. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what your practice looks like today and maybe how, how you personally spend your time, how much designing you're, you're doing today versus, you know, sitting in meetings or more administrative stuff. Like what's, what's a typical week or month look like for you? I, that's a long period of time, a week or a month. I'll do it by the day, but let's talk just a little bit about the studio. I showed you there are on any given day. Well, today I'm at the conference table because the eight desks are all full and there's two of us here at the conference table, Elaine Lopez and myself. Elaine is here uh, leading the research phase of the exhibit. I shouldn't say exhibit. It's the Columbus uh, neighborhood area. Uh, and the two people that I introduce you to among the whole group, John Obajeski and Bud Rodecker, they have been here at Thirst for 13 and 10 years, respectively. John, 13, Bud, 10. Awesome. Those two represent not only the uh, strength of the bench and the high-level performance here at Thirst, they also represent the future of Thirst. So they are uh, excellent, trusted collaborators. I couldn't have imagined uh, having a career like I've had without the two of them at my side at this point in my time as a designer, because they've made even the most crazy idea come to life, and they've offered the right amount of design sensibility at the highest level on all platforms for ideas that are just in the air in the studio, whether they're theirs or whether they're the staff that supports them. Uh, my job on a given day, I have a kind of running joke. I don't do anything. Uh, I just sort of hang out, but that's not true. <laughs> I, I, I do engage as I did this morning. I put in uh, a number of hours uh, designing some type for an animation for a large, I guess, 200-foot-plus uh, story-and-a-half uh, installation, video ins installation that John's leading here at the office, which gets installed soon. So I was making some letter forms that I think these guys can turn into um, super-thick mustacholi, <laughs> digital mustacholi. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I connect that Italian thing again. That's what it'll be. 
this year I am the artist in residence at Loyola University. And with that comes a studio class that I teach. And I teach that Tuesday and Thursday nights. And it's a group of 20 interdisciplinary and diverse seniors in their final semester responding to the issue of gun violence here in Chicago, mm. which is a, a hard issue for anybody to deal with. But it's particularly hard for designers and artists to deal with, especially when I've taken off the table anything that has to do with an infographic. <laughs> because, we're, because we're not here to retype set and restyle statistics. We're here to see if we can find an empathetic point of view yeah. that you know allows the conversation perhaps to shift. So are you... Um... You know, when you talk about the guys who are the future of your studio, I think it's interesting. I heard an architect friend of mine last week at a conference saying that, you know, once he became the the managing partner of the studio, that he realized that his his primary job was to set kind of the future. You know, who's who's going to be his replacement? Who's going to follow in his footsteps and where are they going to take it? So I, and it's not something that I see often in the graphic design world. You know, it's kind of like when you're ready to retire, you turn the lights off when you leave. But I think it's, it's cool that you're thinking about um, kind of the future of that studio as well. I, I am. I think there's so much resident knowledge here and there's such a, a specific groove that we have cut. We are in collaboration and in service to anyone who deals with the subject of design, whether they teach it, design it, make it, specify it, build it, manufacture it, sell it. That's the realm in which we play in. As designers, we're not here to make a marketing brochure for someone selling healthcare. That's an important task that designers are better qualified doing than we are. Our real strength is engaging in conversation where design is the subtext to that conversation. This way, the distance between individuals across from one another at the table is reduced and the speed to which we get to important issues where design can really make a difference culturally, uh, spatially, in terms of resources, whatever. All of that distance between us is reduced and we accelerate the process. I think that is so exciting. And I would want anyone here in the studio, if I wasn't here, to have the opportunity to continue that experience for their career. And so should these guys choose to take uh, thirst well into the future, I'll be the, right there cheering from the sidelines and from my wheelchair. Do you think that focus is what, um, at least from my research, I, I saw, I think it was AIGA mentioned that you're kind of known for long-term relationships with clients. Do you think it's because of that focus of designers who focus on design? So even like the example I saw on your website was the something like 10 different Valentine's cards you'd done for the Jessica LaGrange Interiors company. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, Jessica is a friend and why she comes every year for a Valentine's card is beyond me, but it's an <laughs> indulgence. <laughs> it's an indulgence that we like. Uh, she used to be a, an interior architect at Skidmore Owens and Merrill. Now she runs her own design firm and interior design firm. 
and she's just a fabulous personality. We've served together on the Art Institute Architecture and Design Board under Zoe Ryan. Um, I love Jessica. We've helped her with her website. We help her with her identity. But when I speak about the long-term engagement, it is that that's not even the longest one. We've had one that lasted 17 years with Gilbert Paper, who was purchased by Fox Paper, who then turned into Nina mm -hmm. uh, Paper. And that lasted a long time until Nina actually gobbled them up and furballed us from that process. Mm -hmm. uh, we've worked with uh, Skidmore, Owens & Merrill for ooh, a decade and a half. We had a relationship until our client retired at the Lyric Opera for 25 years. Uh, those kind of relationships are the kind of stuff that make it all rich. You know, it starts to move away from doing work for a client and doing work for somebody you like. And that's how we've defined it. And now the relationships are getting younger. The people coming are not 40s anymore. They're in their 30s, John and Butter in their 30s. And it's the next generation of decision maker. While they may be at the high middle management level, they're the ones who will have another 25 years or more ahead of them and they will need design. And why on earth would they even want to be going through the audition process of another designer when they have someone who understands who they are and what kind of sensibility they have built their own success on? How do you feel like you've successfully identified some of those clients in the past or what do you look for in future clients to identify who's going to be this great long-term relationship? That's a really good question, but I don't think I would ask it quite like that. You said, how have I identified them? Mm -hmm. uh, we have, we have no new business development effort here. Uh, our business development effort has turned out to be just our work. So we uh, do not find ourselves receiving phone calls sometimes sadly from major blue trip blue chip clients like nike or coca-cola or you know whoever uh instead we find ourselves receiving calls from i'll just use indianapolis for an example uh joanna nixon who was helping out one of the foundations as she put together the light festival last august called enlighten and that call came because she asked her friend, Richard McCoy, who he thought she should call. And Richard called us as he started to engage and develop the Exhibit Columbus program. And I'm just like thrilled that both of those people called. Thrilled. And I think because of all of that work, I'm on the Skype call with you. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. well, I mean, maybe that's a good segue. So let's, let's talk about, you know, for, for our listeners who are maybe not aware, Columbus, Indiana is a surprising Mecca of sorts of architectural and graphic design prowess with, you know, an original identity by Paul Rand himself. And, and now you guys find yourself kind of in the midst of, you know, not only great graphic design background, but also some really incredible architecture. So 
maybe let's talk a little bit about what that initial project was there. And, and, you know, just talking to you before the, the show, obviously there's, there's more going on kind of in next steps with that project. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, anybody who has been to Columbus, Indiana discovers that it's a small town, unlike just about any other small town in America. It's distinguished by architecture for the kinds of buildings that are in every town. There's the church, there's the elementary school, there's the factory, there's the corporate headquarters, there's the bank, there's the post office, there's the fire department. It just goes on, right? And in Columbus, these designs, for the most part, have been created by important architects at a period in their career when they were emerging. Now, I'm sure some of those architects came to Columbus and did a second or third project after their careers had already blossomed. But for the most part, they were on the radar of the Miller family and the bank and Cummins Mm -hmm. and the engine company as the architects who could create a presence, who could do placemaking before the term was even popularized and enhance the quality of life through this sort of design. Well, that was a long time ago. And since then, some things have changed and not much new architecture was being produced, Mm -hmm. at least with architects who were again emerging at the end of the 20th century and at the beginning of the 21st century. Yes, we've seen Deborah Burke make some contributions and currently she's the Dean of the Yale School of Architecture, but we, at least Richard McCoy and his crew at Landmark Columbus identified reinvigorating the awareness of the legacy that was there in Columbus as one way to re-inspire the community, not only who were there, but the community that might come to visit and the community that might choose to live there in the future. It was just a curator's, I guess, love fest Mm -hmm. for what was there. And it's fabulous and it transcends architecture. Yes, you mentioned Paul Rand, from what I gather through uh, the archivist, Paul Rand did that as a pro bono project. He created what was called the Dancing Seas Mm -hmm. because he was down there working with the Cummins Corporation or Cummins Engine, however however they're termed, uh, working on everything from their identity to their end report. And of course, in that city was Columbus. Uh, Also helping out with the design of the interiors of the Miller House, I believe Saarinen designed, was the... Uh, famed uh, textile designer and interior designer, Alexander Girard. Well, Girard was also a typographer, a graphic designer, and he's doing schemes for the Washington Street or Main Street of the small town and how it could look from a paint personality or a painted facade and an awning and typography, some of which has already been implemented, some of which remains in Uh, the archive as schematic design, but there's a huge legacy down there of this kind of work and to be invited to participate even at the level of 
Creating an Identity for Exhibit Columbus, which is a two-year uh, symposium in year number one, that was 2000, or 2016, and then coming up in the fall of 2017 is the exhibit, which is going to be a huge couple-month festival where, I don't know, I here's my open invitation for anyone in this area, in these five states, to get your butt over to Columbus, Indiana in the fall. It'll be beautiful, and you'll see some fantastic design on Washington Street, and you'll see it on the avenue of architecture if you will i think that's called fifth street it should be great there's going to be lots to see lots to experience and everyone just might be buying real estate come december in columbus indiana yeah there's some some pretty amazing stuff down there for sure oh yeah quality of life is just it's got a great buzz to it so we're just honored and privileged is really the key word to have any relationship at all with that legacy the people are first rate they're fine and i don't know it's just uh it's come at the perfect time in, in this guy's career i'm just thrilled and grateful yeah actually one of our uh, one of our designers lives just outside of columbus uh cody thompson's our senior art director and he drives drives up here uh, yeah. all day every day so that was, uh, I think that was how we got connected, actually, uh, yes. formally. Well, Cody, he's fabulous, too, because here's a guy who, I don't know whether he grew up there, or whether he chose to live there, but he has drank the Columbus lemonade, and with it comes his love affair, the work of Paul Rand. And Cody, his story, the reason we got in touch with him, we stumbled across an entry he had made on, I think, uh, brand new or under consideration when they discussed the evolution of the Columbus Dancing Sea by another group, I think they're out of Grand Rapids, who'd come into Columbus and offered a brand program for the city. And this particular brand program took a modified version of Paul Rand's Geometric Sea, locked it up inside of a square, colored it green and blue and put a white outline on it. <laughs> all of all of that um, just, well, here I go on the record, uh, sucked whatever innocence and spirit <laughs> Paul Rand embodied into that program. They just locked it up and hermetically sealed it as if it was <laughs> the end of an Indiana Jones movie, you know, where they're taking a crate down that long hallway of crates. <clears throat> I don't think there's any magic in that logo at all anymore, but it happens to be the logo that's just about everywhere. And it works, I think, reasonably well at the municipal level. I think it works really well there, actually. But, you know, is that the kind of uh, identity that the city wants to put forth for all the tourists coming to town? Is there an ounce of inspiration embedded in that identity? Mm -hmm. And I would say, no, I think functionality trumps inspiration. And what you have is a hardworking identity. You don't have that magic moment that, that Paul Rand gifted to the city. And you don't have that sort of reverberating in any way. And maybe it doesn't need to. You know, maybe that's just sort of like old school Rick lusting for the better days, you know, make design great again. I don't know, but 
<laughs> so maybe, um, you know, I've seen the, the work that you've done for Columbus and I, I believe it was maybe a poster design, but, and, you know, describing visuals always makes for great, great radio, but <laughs> maybe you could talk us through kind of what your, what your thought process was and kind of how you guys came to the, the solution for that particular identity. With pleasure. There were about uh, no less than six different directions that Richard McCoy had a chance to review. But the one that Richard actually gravitated to aligned itself closest what, to what his brief was. He gave us two things to focus on. He said, I want you to have the obvious relationship to Paul Rand's work both in terms of its form and in terms of its uh, spirit. That Paul Rand identity, and this is what I learned from Richard, had an immediate connection to people of all ages. Hmm. Access- accessibility is what made that mark so indelible and special. The other thing Richard did was he showed us a color scheme implemented on the carpet underneath the kitchen table in the Miller house designed by Alexander Gerard. Mm-hmm. On top of that carpet were uh, Saarinen tulip chairs and each one of them had an embroidered seat cushion and that embroidered seat cushion had thread that was also uh, the beginning of our color selection. So Richard said, pick your colors from Gerard, pick your design geometry and sensibility from Rand and give me something that says Columbus or exhibit Columbus and make certain that what you do today can evolve because I hope to have this exhibit Columbus happen annually well into the future. So I don't want to have an identity that I have to rethink four years from now. I want an identity that I can always update or refresh but never lose its kind of formal strength. And simply by using pure geometry, whether it's half circles, circles, squares, and stripes, and playing it with the same uh, kid-like slash color form uh, means that Rand would have used, we were able to spell the word both in a long horizontal strip and a stacked version. We were able to recolor it for all the applications. We could do it in one color, two color for silk screen. Uh, we could make projections and banners and stage designs and posters and buttons and websites and brochures and, you know, press releases. Just about anything that Richard needed, we could do. And just this week, you say, well, what do we do? Well, we animated it and we had uh, one of the folks uh, from Columbus make some two-second sound for an audiovisual sound signature at the beginning of their videotapes. Yeah, and the the end result is just awesome. Just absolutely love that stuff. And as, um, if we haven't made enough pitches already to visit the city of Columbus, uh, specifically, I think the Miller House is, is absolutely worth uh, checking out for design enthusiasts of any type. It's just it's curated by the Indianapolis Museum of Art. And oh, that's it's right. so yes. cool to see all those different designers coming together for such a, just an awesome example of mid-century work. Yeah, it's pretty fabulous. 
pretty fabulous. So I'm curious, Rick, what one of your proudest moments has been as a designer? Oh, hmm. Now this is going to sound kind of uh, silly. I could easily point to some work and go, oh, and I, you know, I'm not going to do that one because the best work I think is yet to be done. I would have to really just show great pride in the people that I've had to collaborate with before John and Bud, who've been just fantastic. There have been another two decades of designers, some of which have made great contributions after they've left the studio that I'm particularly proud of, like uh, Chester Jenkins is a type designer. He is spent nine and a half years at Thirst. Now he's in New York. His company is called Village. And you can see his work uh, from Michael Beirut, Pentagram, uh, as he redrew Frederick Rowdy's typeface for Syracuse University. Or you can see his typography at the Cooper Hewitt, which he did for Pentagram's Eddie Opera. Uh, Chester made great contribution and all the, I think like 60 some people who've come through here and I've had the pleasure of sitting right next to and made things with, to me, that's the great thing. I think my proudest moment is being able to be a member of the Chicago design community with no enemies and no regrets. That's awesome. Obviously, you've had an opportunity to tackle a lot of just amazing projects in the past. I'm curious if there are any dream projects that you still got on your list that you haven't been able to get into yet. Uh, the bucket list. The bucket list. Yeah, I think I would. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example here. About a month ago, in fact, it was right before Christmas, I came across a VHS tape, a 52-minute tape, where I had one copy of a film, an animated film, I conceived and directed for Herman Miller in 1998. And I dedicated that film to Tibor Coleman and Charles and Ray Eames. None of them are still alive anymore. And when I looked at that film, I thought, ah, oh, I think I would like to restore that film. Mm. I'd like to bring it back to its, its real... Uh, high definition beauty because it was the first time in this studio that we had worked with motion capture. And it was the first time that I really had a chance to overextend myself uh, in a directorial mode and in a design mode and put graphic design in motion. It was just, uh, I was seduced all over again watching it. Mm. And to be honest, I only watched it one time since Christmas. I did have the VHS turned into a DVD and I thought one day at lunch, I would share it with the studio, but we've just been running like crazy people here this year. And I haven't had chance to slow down the machine enough to say, Hey, let's take 53 minutes and watch an animation. That's 20 years old, <laughs> but I do want to take that back. My dream project. And it was on my to-do list this year was to take that DVD over to Zealand, Michigan, share it with uh, some folks I know still at the high level at Herman Miller and invite them to bring this thing back to life because there hasn't been anything like it since. And it's as good as any piece of moving design I've seen in a long time. It just needs restoration. 
Very cool. What do you feel like, you know, obviously you've had a lot of designers working for you in the past and um, I'm curious what your favorite piece of advice is to extend to those, those new folks that come to join you or maybe what your favorite piece of advice that you've ever received has been. Yes, I can do the advice story, but I have to uh, couch it with a little bit of a, a Rick story. When I was working with Bruce, um, a young guy from uh, Rhode Island School of Design came to Chicago. His name was Michael Glass. And Michael was a designer for the Museum of Contemporary Art. He was an educator and he had left the museum and was starting his own studio. Somehow we became friends and uh, we were sort of like looking for our path into the Chicago design community. And we decided that one night we would go visit Mort Goldschall. Well, Morton Goldschall was in the first class in the Bauhaus, and he was a designer working on many platforms in Chicago. He would work in film, and print, and exhibit, and identity. So Michael picked me up from work one day. We drove up to Mort's office, and it was pouring rain. We get out, we go to his modernist building, and we stand on the doorstep getting soaked because there's no awning. And his wife comes to the door, and we say, oh, we're here to see Mr. Goldschall. And she says, do you have an appointment? We said, no. <laughs> she, she says, he's busy. Ah, it's after work. Come on. We just want to say hi and meet him. She says, I don't think so. So, of course, we grovel for a little bit. And obviously, we're getting soaked. And sympathy sets in. And she goes and she gets more gold show. So he comes to the door. And at that point, neither of us know what to say because we're just like dumbstruck by this demigod who has shown up at the doorway. And I think I mustered the courage to go, uh, 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 Mr. Goldshaw, if there's anything uh, you could share with two young designers, what might it be? And he thinks for a minute and he says, I have three words for you. And I'm thinking like, get the <laughs> hell out. <laughs> get off my doorstep. Mm -hmm. um, he says, uh, take a risk. Mm-hmm. And we looked at each other and went, take a risk. What does he mean by that? Uh, it took a while, you know, take a risk. And so that has been something that I have heard myself on any number of occasions repeating. Uh, when I left Bruce on March 31st, 1981, I said, Mr. Beck, is there any way I can thank you? He said, well, there is. There's only one way. He said, pass it on. Mm -hmm. and, and as a young designer, I went out to visit uh, the then like famous Michaels. You know, there was Michael Mannering and Michael Vanderbilt, Michael Osborne and Michael Mabry. And let's see, there was Michael Patrick Cronin. <laughs> so I remember flying out. I would get disheartened every time I'd open up a CA magazine, think, oh, shit, I'll never amount to anything. These guys have figured out the lemonade to drink and I don't have access to it. Well, uh, I did get an airplane ticket and I went out to San Francisco with the express purpose of seeing at least three of them. And on that particular day, I saw Vanderbilt in his office, Michael Mannering and Michael Patrick Cronin. And when I was with Michael Patrick Cronin, he said something to me that offered clarity to uh, my practice, which was just getting started. And because I asked him, I said, how do you guys do it? Every project you do is just amazing. I said, I find myself doing like the worst work ever. 
they should just like go to a printer for what I do. And, you know, get that printer to get off press and do some design work. Um, and he said, you get what you do. It took, again, it took years for me to sort of like figure out the crystal within that phrase. But in essence, I play it back like this to young designers who grow a little impatient with their own career path. I said, look, if you do something for a restaurant, the next project gets for a restaurant. If you do something that's, that's strategically uh, burdened, the next project's going to be like that. And if you do something that really makes you happy, odds are the universe is going to open up and reward you by giving you another chance to make yourself really happy. Mm. And that's it. If you just stay clearly focused on that which you are doing, then the next project you get is a better opportunity to test that which you're doing. I think those are some great tidbits. The take a risk, pass it on, and you get what you do. You get what you do. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. So clearly, I don't have any new ideas myself. Notice none of them came from me. I'm just the guy who's like flypaper. I'm the guy who could walk into somebody's studio, look at the walls, and figure out how they did it. And I'm the one who can be an apostle for other designers who have great wisdom. And they say to me things like I just repeated, and I can deliver them again. Well, I think you're, uh, you're living out that pass it on thing. I sure am. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rick, before we let you go here, um, I'm curious, this is one of my favorite questions to ask people, whether it's personal or work or design or whatever. I'm curious what you are, find yourself most obsessed with right now. On any level? On any level. Like anything? Like just like. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. What, do you, what do you find yourself most obsessed with? I love that I've stumped Rick Balasenti. Oh my God, you sure did. Well, I'll tell you some things of late that I had been trying to do with great obsession. And I've, I've sort of let myself down. Like I've wanted to relearn how to play the guitar. And so I've taken a couple of years of guitar lessons and I've performed uh, with my wife as she writes songs in small clubs. But boy, my fingers, I think, are really all thumbs. So I just can't get that down. Uh, the next thing I tried to do is I tried to like create a really first-rate art collection. And no matter how much I looked and how many cool galleries I made contact with, there was always somebody out there who had the cooler collection than I did. And so it just left me like, hmm, I don't think I want to keep doing that obsession anymore because that's such an expensive obsession. Mm. But I do delight in that which I've collected. And uh, uh, lately, that is my new thing. My new, <laughs> oh, I'm going to embarrass myself here. I would really like to get better dancing tango with my wife. Mm. And so we went to Buenos Aires and every day for two weeks we took 90 minutes of private tango lessons. Then at night we would go to a malanga for a couple hours. And uh, so now we just have to find that person here in Chicago who can give us the good tango lessons. 
and because I'm going to figure out that beast because that's one uh, elusive dance, mysterious and subtle, and it challenges me like nothing else. Awesome. Well, listeners, there you have it. If you've got any good tips for where to get good tango instruction in Chicago, send those off to Rick. Yeah, I need a good Argentinian to show up <laughs> at my doorstep. That's right. <laughs> well, Rick, I appreciate um, your time today to chat with us. Love all the, the stories that we've heard today. Um, maybe you could tell our listeners where they could find you guys online and where they might connect with you. Ah, okay. You can find us at 3st.com. That's 3st. It looks like 3street.com. You can also see some uh, obsessive work outside the studio at rickvalicenti.com. It's a clumsy website, so don't critique me on the website. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and uh, hopefully soon I will be able to share with you uh, the work of this class that I'm about to head off to right now of uh, seniors at Loyola University dealing with gun violence yeah, in Chicago. Sounds like an important project and We'd love to share it with our listeners. So Rick, I appreciate all the um, time today and thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, guys, that was episode number 60 in the books. Thank you so much for listening over the past year. I really, really, really appreciate everyone who has helped us make this show what it is. If you have a moment, head over to iTunes today and give us a rating and review. Help other people find the show. Also, give us a tweet at Obsessed Show or at Josh Miles and let us know who you think we should interview next. Obsessed with Design is a production of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon. Visit milesherndon.com to learn more. Our intro music is Matchbox Girl by Cassie Joe, and our show is always edited by Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit brassybroad.com to learn more. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.